I think during this sermon, we're going to find out who's bothered by stuff on the stage. I'm not, <laughs> so I'll push it off. This has been a fun service so far. Let's open up Psalm 46 and just keep the fun going. Uh, if you would, I invite you to find Psalm 46. We'll read through the whole thing. Uh, we'll do it in a couple parts. Um, and while you're finding that, um, I want to begin with uh, just noting that Psalm 46 was actually the text of inspiration for Martin Luther's hymn that we sang this morning, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Um, and around our house, we have one of those uh, doorbells that has the video on it, you know, and you ring it and we can tell who's there. It shows up on her phone, but it also announces in the house who's there. So if for Stephanie, it says mom is usually right, is at the door and the kids have different names. You can type in different names, but Stephanie has a shirt that has Martin Luther's face on it. And these are pretty common actually in Lutheran circles. And it says, well, here you can see what it says. Nailed it on it. If you know, he put the 95 theses on the door. And uh, anyways, the doorbell registered that as a face. So I typed in Martin Luther as the name. And so now every so often bearded individuals come to our door and ring the doorbell and it says, Martin Luther is at the door, which is hilarious. I love it. But just to, to make a historical point um, on that and then move into the text, Martin Luther wrote A Mighty Fortress based on Psalm 46. He wrote it somewhere between the years 1527 and 1529. And to give you some idea of what was going on in his life at that time, in 1521, he had been formally excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, and he had also stood up against uh, Emperor Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, so he was not really in good stock with anybody in power at all. He was basically living and hiding under the good graces of some lord, a lord who uh, at least wanted him to have a fair hearing and some people who were sympathetic to his thoughts. But he'd been living and hiding for six, seven years by the time he wrote this uh, hymn, maybe even almost a decade, depending on what year it was. Literally living in fortresses and in towers, at this time. So when a mighty fortress is our God, he's literally living this idea as he writes this. He had been, his life had been under threat. He had really struggled for that time to know if God was really trustworthy. And it's a real thing. It's real. When we read the words of scripture, they were real to the psalmist. There's truth there back when they were written and inspired. They were real when Martin Luther had to live the words Am I going to live or die right now? And is God my refuge in this time? And they're real for us today. So let's see what the psalmist has to say to us today. Let's see what God's word is asking of us right now. Psalm 46, verses 1 through 3. Let's start there. It says, God is our refuge and strength in ever-present help and trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the sea, heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. God is our refuge. It starts right there. The fourth word on the, on the psalm, refuge, that really means trust is what it is. The, the meaning behind the word is God is trustworthy. And we heard it in the children's sermon. I think it's the, the, the question jumps out right away as you read through the psalm and read through the whole psalm. And it's a challenging question. Do I trust God? Do you trust God this morning? Do I trust that God is my refuge and strength? Do I trust uh, that the, the God of Jacob fights for my salvation? Do I trust him? 
Does the Lord of hosts have all power to save? Do I trust him? Is God most high just? Will he set to right that which is wrong in this world in the end? Do I trust him? And is even that sense of justice that needs to be there starting in me first? Has God started that and rooted that in me first? Do I trust God to do that? And I think where the psalmist takes us by the end is really a question like this. Can I bow in reverence today because I trust in God's tomorrow? Do I trust him? That even though adversity strikes in this life, that's but a chapter. It's not the final chapter. It's not the story that God has us on, that he has something better. His redemption is out there. And we will face adversity, but he is our refuge and strength till the end, to a greater tomorrow. Do I trust him? That's what the psalmist is asking us through this. And you see two images in the first half of the psalm. We already kind of saw the image of the sea that's there, mountains falling into the sea. And then you see the image of the river. So let's go on in the psalm, starting at verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolation he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the word of the Lord. As I said, there's two images that are there at the front half of the psalm, the image of the sea and the image of the river. If you look at the image of the sea, uh, way back in the book of Genesis, when God creates, he creates, of course, everything. But when he puts the sea, he puts the boundaries so the water will sit in its proper boundaries. And then he fills the sea. And what God creates is good. What God creates is good from the very beginning. It is good. And when God creates the sea, it's a place of provision. It's a place of order. Because God is the one who makes order out of chaos. And that's what God does with that initial work of creation. Sea is not chaotic. The sea, though, will come to symbolize quite often throughout the Old Testament chaos and evil and turbulence throughout. There are times when, when even that turbulence gets used for good, like when uh, Israel is building a temple and they're getting cedar from Lebanon floated down on the sea. There you can see that, that it's used for good. But one of the more operative ways that we see the sea uh, worked out can be seen both in the book of Jonah and actually in the book of Revelation. So the book of Jonah, we won't recount the whole thing, we'll just say this. It's evidenced in the book of Jonah, as so often in the Old Testament, that Israel is not a seafaring people. Whenever they need to go across uh, open sea, not the Sea of Galilee, but across open sea like the Mediterranean, the Great Sea, they have to use somebody else's boat, somebody else they're going with. And, and Jonah decides that he's going to endure the chaos of the sea to try and get to the farthest reaches of the world in order to not obey God. He's trying to find a place where he can be outside of the sphere of God's sovereignty and control, which is a fool's errand. You can't find it. 
And he figures that out along the way because God, to paraphrase, says, not on my watch. And we know the rest of the story. The sovereign is in control, even though the sea is chaotic. You can also see in Revelation 21, 1, I think this kind of concludes the, the idea of what the sea meant throughout so much of the Old Testament. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. The sea stands in for evil, is what it is, for chaos, for sin and the effect of sin. There's no longer any of that now in God's new heaven and the new earth. I imagine there's open water, that kind of thing, but it doesn't mean chaos anymore, is what we're told. Now, you can see the turbulence. Psalm 46 is a turbulent psalm through the middle portion of it particularly and the beginning with the mountains falling in the sea and the sea foaming and the earth quaking and all that. Some have tried to historically place this uh, in the days of King Hezekiah being confronted with the Assyrians. There's no indication from the text when it takes place. We just get nothing out of it. So who knows if that's when it happens you and I can reflect on this and realize that we can enter into the psalm pretty easily because we all know what turbulent times are like. Any of us have been through that. Even the kids sitting up here have been through hard days. Of course, they're scalable, right? Rejection and not having somebody share with you is a hard day for a kid. We've experienced the bigger versions of that as adults. We know what it's like, and you can see some of the, the ends of the, the, the hard times and the turbulent times are evidenced in war in this that God's going to cease war and the weapons of war are going to be destroyed. The defense is burned. Nations that are claiming sovereignty over not other nations, God at some point is going to say, enough, I'm sovereign, you're not. And just as a, a, a linguistic aside for a moment, just to comment on one word, I'm unclear as to why in verse 9, some of you have, uh, he burns the shield, some of you have chariots. Chariot seems like the more appropriate word. I don't know why I couldn't figure it out this week, but we get the idea. God's going to put an end to that. The weapons of war are done, and the warring between nations is done, and God's going to say, I'm exalted, I'm in control, I rule this, done. We can also see then, if we're contrasting the sea with the river image that's there in verse 4 particularly, you can see that a river is obviously bounded by its banks. It's, it's pretty obvious where it goes, even if the course of the river changes. It's a natural, life-giving kind of waterway. There's a natural order to it. And so in the Old Testament, it gets used in a positive way, typically, as an image or metaphor of things like fruitfulness, of God's bountifulness and God's care and blessing. Uh, it gets used as sometimes quite literally, as a place of crossing over, a decision point. Uh, Abraham crosses the Euphrates River when he's called by God to come leave his home and go to a land you do not know. And he literally crosses the Euphrates. In the in Old Testament, it talks a number of times about he crossed the river or when he was on the other side of the river. It's talking about the Euphrates. He made a decision, and he was living on the other side of the river after a certain point living into God's promises. Joshua does the same thing when we went through the book of Joshua a few months ago. Uh, he literally crosses the river with the Israelites. And once they cross the river, it's clear you're living on the other side of the river. You have to live off the provision of the land that's not fully in your control yet, but God's going to provide. It's a decision point quite often. And God has sovereignty over the river. That's evidenced in scripture as well, because sometimes he'll dry up rivers Sometimes 
he will make them go out of their banks, that is, to flood, and sometimes he makes them brimstone, that is, sulfurous and unusable. And in fact, all images you can find within Isaiah of that, Isaiah 30, 33, 42, and 50, like within a short period of time, God can do all of those things. God's sovereignty is clear, and it's clearly identified in the image of the river throughout Scripture. And if we look back at verse 4 then, we see it says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. It's the source, it's the life-giving source of God's presence. We talked last week about the importance of proximity to God, especially in perseverance. Proximity to God means everything. That is where life is found, and that's where life is found, and we've lost it. And just like if you look back at the Garden of Eden, back in the Old Testament, that's the headwaters of the four rivers that give life to everything in the world. So God is the headwater of that what gives life to everything, and we will find no life apart from him. Just as a commentary on this, I found this useful this week. The late Eugene Peterson, in commenting on this verse, points out, he says, the imagery of Psalm 46 is violent in contrast to to the pervasive violence that constitutes the atmosphere in which we pray the city of god is set down as a simple matter of fact a city is a civilized place a place of courtesy and trust the city of god is safe not because it's a sphere of innocence protected by unscalable walls and sophisticated security systems it's safe because it's the sphere where God's help is available. Now, understanding all of that, I want to present to us a potential problem we may encounter in the world around us. God is the giver of life. God is the one who will end all enmity and conflict, put things to right in the end. And so I want to show you a tool uh, to illustrate this, but then a problem that we sometimes face. So this is actually, it'll come up on the screen. This is called the Big Story. InterVarsity Press uh, or InterVarsity Fellowship uses it. And it's it's designed so you can do evangelism on a napkin. It's actually a pretty cool way to do it. Uh, But usually you do it step by step, A, B, C, D. We're just going to throw it all out there and not go through the whole thing in that systematic way. But what we can at least see from this is that we were designed for good, That's how God created us in his image, designed for good, designed for close relationship with him. And then we've been damaged by evil. We don't need to get into all the the specifics of that, but uh, we are culpable as much as the curse of sin messes with us, even when we're not uh, fully responsible for all the effects that we feel in our body and through time. But the world's broken, is what you see in, in world B. And we need somebody outside the system to save us and make it right which would be Jesus Christ. That's God's solution to the brokenness of the world. And when we join in, when we're saved through Jesus Christ and, and in Christ, then we actually become part of God's plan for setting things to right. We're sent to heal by God's power. Now, it's God's power doing it, but we're part of the, the workers of that. So it's worth pointing this out uh, because the world is damaged by evil. And I think we heard it in the prayer this morning how much the world is damaged by evil. And I think it's no mystery to us that if you go and present this, if you just went with A and B and went to virtually anybody at a restaurant right now and presented this on a napkin, you'd probably get a lot of, yeah, the world is damaged by, by something, whether they call it evil or something else. 
they would agree. And just use the keyword injustice right now, and you'll get pretty far in that conversation. Yeah, there's a ton of injustice, a ton of wrong in the world. But I bring this up in the context of what we're talking about. We live in a chaotic world, but sometimes those people who are consumed by the chaos but don't know the Savior are so consumed with the chaos that they tell us that world B is the natural state of affairs of the world. And while we can do some things to address that, in fact, we might be able to do a lot, that's the way the universe intended it. That's the way it is. End of story. And in fact, I was presenting this not too long ago and had somebody just plain say, why can't we just stay in world B? That's the way it is. So broken by sin did this feel, person feel that they, they wanted to live into that brokenness. We run into that quite a lot around us. And I bring that up after we look at what the psalmist tells us about what God is going to do in the final chapters that God has in mind and the invitation to join that story. Because brothers and sisters, sometimes we can start to buy in to the narrative that world B is the way it's supposed to, to be. Sometimes we in the church can start to believe that without really realizing we've done it. And let me tell you two ways that it will look. One way, and we're living this uh, in, within the context of the church uh, more and more, unfortunately, is we start to say that the brokenness is that the way God made us in the image of God. We start to credit a lot of the things that are broken in the system with actually that's what God intended. And we see that more and more, and that's not the truth. The other way that we see this evidenced, and that's, that's living in world B is what that is, and just sticking around there, but trying to call it world C is what we're doing. But the other way that we see this evidenced sometimes, and see if this one fits, uh, is that sometimes we just try and bypass through Jesus Christ and go over to Sent to Heal together because we're doers and we know the mission and we cognitively know the mission. And we've read scripture and we know what we're supposed to do. And sometimes we'll do this. We'll say, I know that God has called us to this, so let's just say a quick prayer and go and do it. Let's just say a quick prayer and plan. Let's just plan it and then say a quick prayer and then let's get the stuff set up and say a quick prayer and go do it. Do you hear the quick prayer piece in there? We're, we're actually, we end up cutting Jesus out unnecessarily and saying, God, great, you called us to this. Now you just stay back there and we'll go do the work. Instead of spending a lot more time with our Heavenly Father in committed prayer and relationship so that we have that relationship developed as we do the work and can bring others into that relationship, not just the work. We buy into the brokenness or we kind of bypass the salvation piece to save the world by ourselves and our own efforts. The world's broken. God's given us a solution in Jesus Christ. And we can't pretend that the world's broken and that's the way it was meant to be. And we can't just do the work without going through Jesus Christ and being in close communion with him. We need both of those things. We need to follow through all the way with God's plan. If we go to verse 10, we're going to be challenged with a few things now as we consider all that that entails. Verse 10 is the most powerful part of the psalm, in my opinion. Over all the turbulence that's going on, God speaks through and says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Ultimately, God's not going to put up with anything except the truth, because he is true. 
Everything that we know is true is measured by him. He's not going to put up with anything. God is incredibly patient to let us come and respond to the invitation to come to him. But at some point, God's going to take that which is wrong and make it right. And if we're not on that train, we miss out. So the big question that the psalmist puts before us because of that reality is, do you trust him? Do you take him at his word? Do you trust him? Do you believe that God's tomorrow is better and his power is all you need today to get there? So I've got four questions that hopped out from the text at me uh, based on what we see there. And the first one, they're all about trust, of course, but the first one is, do I trust that God is just? And we sang about some of the river imagery this morning that's related to justice, where justice rolls down like a mighty water that comes out of Amos, that river imagery rushing down. That's one of the ways that rivers are used in the Old Testament is to talk about justice and God's justice coming down. We know that around the world there's violence, there's chaos, there's struggle, there's enmity, there's injustice all around us. We can see it, we can read about it, we have experienced it perhaps. God's cure for that, as we saw in the image before, is Jesus, that Jesus is the cure that's going to make what's wrong right. It's through his power, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that sin and death are put to death, and God undoes the power of sin through Jesus. Now, if we follow Jesus Christ, then we're a part of God's solution, and justice, in fact, is part of that. Now, it's just part of that. We're just part of what God is doing. We are not Uh, God's sole arbiters of justice. God is just. We are not. We're just called on to that journey with him. And the idol that we can buy into if we don't trust God here, the idol that we can set up and begin to worship, and we do this in, in the church, and we do this in the evangelical wing of the church easily sometimes, is that we can believe that purely legislative, military, or political fixes will set the world right. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to be into all those, involved in all those spheres, in politics, legislation. I've written to senators. We ought to do that. We ought to vote. We need to be in the military. But we have to recognize that none of us are righteous. Only God is righteous, right? No nation is actually fully righteous. Only God is righteous. We aren't righteous. God may call us. God may call nations to do things, but only God is actually righteous. And when we set up an idol and again, leave God's work behind through Jesus Christ and just try and go do the work without him because we know the heart of God in that way, but we don't actually have the relationship with God in that way, then we end up making a mockery and a parody of God's justice when we cut him out of the process. That's why he says, I'm going to be exalted because other people are making a mockery out of what is mine to do. Other people are making a parody out of my justice in this world. Do you believe that God is just? And are you on board with him? Second question of trust is, do I believe that God is sovereign? That God really is the all-powerful ruler of everything that is. Do I believe that God is sovereign? I'm going to suggest that this is one of the reasons that we need to praise God by name, by title, and by character, is the recognition and the trust that God is sovereign. I've really woken up to that over the past few years, done it a lot myself, have brought it to you as a congregation. I know even two weeks ago, that was a tough one for some people and really welcome for others to turn and praise God uh, by name while kind of looking at each other. Um, I recognize that. Um, But praising God by name, regardless of how we did it two weeks ago, is Christianity 101. We should praise God by name. We should praise God by character. We should praise God by title over and over a lot. 
daily. That should be the first breath that comes out of our mouth. Both a spirit of thanksgiving and praise to God. And when we praise God by name, character, and title, we're reminded of who he is and who we are underneath him. We're reminded of what God's priorities are because we know his character. His character lines up with his, his priorities line up with his characters. And we were then reminded what our priorities should be. That if we're created in the image of God, if we're redeemed through Christ, we ought to be reflecting those as well. We'll never be God, but we need to reflect the character of God and be ambassadors of Christ in that way everywhere we go. Uh, this psalm included a title of God that we saw last week, uh, but it, it also included that that is the, I've forgotten it now. My goodness, I didn't write it down. Well, ignore that part. Somebody can tell me later what I forgot. It's a really important title for God, and I can't remember. But with the one I was going to focus on, the, the, the point I was going to focus on is that it actually uses a pretty general term for God that's still important, which is Elyon in verse 4. Lord of hosts, that's the one. Um, Wow. Elyon, Psalm, Psalm 46.4 talks about the Lord Most High. Elyon, exalted. That's why you can see that when he's talking about being exalted at the end. He talked about the river of God going to the Most High, the exalted. And even in a simple name like that, in a simple title like that, we're confronted with the question, is God the Most High or not? Do I act and live as if something else is more high? Do I act and live as if I'm more high? Because that's what sin says. Sin says, I am actually the most high. But is God the most high or not? And this is why praising God matters. If we simply praise God and say, God, you are most high. Do you see what I did? I just praised God right there. God, you are most high. That's all it is, like complimenting a person. God, you are most high. God, you are exalted. I am already confronted with, well, is he or not? Am I living that way or not? And, and I think that we can begin to find, if we praise God by name and title and throw out different names and titles in praise, we begin to actually discover areas in our lives that need to be discipled a bit more, where we might struggle. God, you are just. Well, for some of us, we want to take that on ourselves completely and totally. God, you are just. Is he the one who's going to set it right, or do I have to do the work? God, you are father. That's a hard one sometimes for some people, especially if you've had a rough go with a father in life. God, you are a father. What does it mean that you're the perfect heavenly father, the one that it should, that it should look like? In our day of focusing on God's love almost exclusively, I think most of us need to pray, God, you are holy. So we begin to understand that part of God's character because I think most of us have forgotten it, what that means. And you can throw in wrathful, judge, almighty. You could start to go down the list. God, you are. And as you pray those, and if you struggle with them, pray them more and praise God more by those because it confronts us with if we actually are living as if God is that and how I fit under that in character. Do I trust that God is sovereign? Third question, do I know that God is my defense in trouble? I'm going to have a, just a minorly transparent moment with you over the last month plus in particular, the last two weeks, I have felt a very anxious heart in life. There's just been a lot going on all around, and I have had a very anxious heart. And I didn't really realize that until this week. Um, I met with my spiritual director I've been seeing uh, pretty regularly over the last 10 years. And, and I kind of was preparing for that thinking, oh yeah, that's what's going on. I have a really anxious heart here, God. 
And I kind of wonder if I don't trust you as I work through the text. I kind of wonder if I'm not trusting you in certain areas because it's so anxious in here. And I had to work through this myself. And I appreciate that after really sitting with my spiritual director and we praying together about this and really listening to God together on what's God doing right now in your life and what does that anxious heart mean and how can you hand it over? It was really restorative and helpful. But one thing that I really appreciated that my spiritual director did, and I want to give a little bit of that gift to you, is that for pastors and preachers particularly, we can live in the text so much that we're thinking how we're going to deliver it. And fortunately, my spiritual director is also a pastor, and he said, can we do something in our, our prayer at the end? Can I just read the passage of Scripture you're going to preach, not as a sermon text, but for Evan? And he pulled out, he just had the message sitting on his desk, so he said, I'll just read it in the message, it's right here. And I'll read a couple uh, verses from the message for you right now and see if, if you have an anxious heart this morning, if you're troubled this morning, if you can just close your eyes and let these words wash over you a little bit and see what God has to say for you. It says, Rivers, river fountains splash joy, cooling God's city. This sacred haunt of the Most High. God lives here. The streets are safe. God at your service from crack of dawn. Godless nations rant and rave, kings and kingdoms threaten, but earth does anything he says. Jacob wrestling God fights for us. God of angel armies protects us. Do I know that God is my defense? That's the God that's fighting for me and contending for my salvation and inviting me in to his plan. Jacob wrestling, God fights for us. God of angel armies protects us. And that perhaps leads to the most difficult question, I think, uh, erupts from the test related to trust. Obviously, can I, do I trust God is the big question, but this one sits under there very closely. Can I be still and let go of my anxiety and fear? When the text says be still, the word that's there means relent. It means back off. Can I let go? Can I back off? Can I give over to God? Can I take stock of what needs to go and be laid at the foot of the cross and let God be exalted and let God do what is right with that? The greatest demonstration of God's sovereignty, of God's justice, is Jesus Christ. That's his solution to fix this. That's his place where we can lay those anxieties and fears. That's our defense in the time of trouble. That's the demonstration of God's sovereignty is Jesus Christ and his work to defeat sin, death, and the devil, and that work that needs to happen in us so that we can join him on the day and bow before him when he is exalted and know he is God and not be surprised on that day. I was struck as sort of uh, just a final thought this week when we talked early on about the river imagery and their river crossing moments throughout scripture. I was struck by the fact that um, one of the river crossing moments, and I'm going to mix metaphors, is when the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee. When they have a decision moment to make. They're sitting in the boat with Jesus. Storm comes up. Jesus is sleeping. And they're fearing for their lives. 
and they, and we'll just paraphrase this all, but uh, they say, wake up, Jesus, aren't you afraid? And he looks at the storm and says, quiet, be still. And it stops. And it's one of those river crossing moments for the disciples because they're confronted with something remarkable. They know that the only one who can control the weather is God. And this rabbi from Nazareth just controlled the weather in their boat. And they are confronted with the fact, who is this guy that we're following? It's one of those river crossing moments where they have to decide, are we with him fully or not? Can, his, can we trust him? Is, and, and the question really isn't so much about every knee bowing in the end. The question is, can Jesus do what he did to the storm in you? Can Jesus calm that storm in you and bring him into his story, bring you into his story? Do you trust him enough? for that. And so the commitment I would ask of you today, if you're willing to make it, perhaps you already have, so it's easy. Perhaps you haven't. But to, to actually ask yourself this question throughout the week, to commit to this. It's not a question, it's a statement. I willingly bow in reverence today because I trust God's tomorrow. When you're confronted with times of anxiety, struggle, trouble, when you need strength this week, tell yourself this, I willingly bow to God today because I trust God's tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, may we have such trust in you to recognize that you are sovereign in control, but you are holy and loving and you care for us and you want us to be part of your plan. You're not going to give up on your character to do that. You're going to call us into that. You're not going to give up on the project of getting rid of sin in this world and the curse of sin and injustice you're going to call us into being a part of getting rid of that. Only your son can do that, but only your son will do that when we say yes and cross the river over to him. Only your son will do that if we'll let the storms be settled by him and if we say yes to Jesus Christ and if we relent and bow to you and back off and let go. Lord, we bring in lots of trouble and anxiety and struggles and fears this morning. And for an awful lot of us, it takes a tremendous amount of trust to lay that at your feet. But Lord, we know that you have all power to redeem what's broken in us through your son, Jesus, and we ask that you would do that today. Redeem us, make us right with you so that we can be partners with you in putting this world back to right and walking into your kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth where there is no sea, Lord, where we get to stand in glory with you and praise your name eternally. Lord, this we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.